Hey everyone and welcome to Between the Lines. I'm Ian Nepetian, formerly of The Jack and Ian Show. And today we've got a huge episode in store for you guys as there's going to be some great content regarding MLB news, developments in the NBA playoffs, and also we're going to close out the video with some analysis of the Liverpool-Chelsea FA Cup final that took place this past weekend. Um, but starting out first, I want to run you guys through my three players of the week um, f this week for the major leagues. And they are Nestor Cortez, Reed Detmers, and Josh Naylor. Um, starting off with Nestor Cortez. Nestor Cortez, um, he pitched a phenomenal game against the New York Yankees last week. He pitched seven and a third, gave up only one hit, no earned runs, and struck out 11 batters. Um, he did get a no decision in this game as the Yankees and the Rangers were tied going into when he was taken out of the game. But he pitched phenomenally. And, you know... Nestor Cortez is one of those pitchers that I think everyone loves to watch. Um, whether it was his battles with between him and Shohei Otani, or just him changing his windup and his leg kicks and all those little antics um, during the games. But he, he's just a great pitcher to watch. Um, but last week against the Rangers, he had a great game. It was his sixth start, um, but he is only 1-1 one one right now, which means that he hasn't been given many decisions, which means, you know... Even though he's pitching great, his record doesn't necessarily show that. Um, but so far, after six starts, he's got a 1.41 ERA, which is fantastic. And going back to that specific game I was talking about against the Rangers, um, in seven and a third innings, when he faced out of the out of the 27 batters he faced, he had 22 first pitch strikes, which came out to be approximately 81% first pitch strikes. So. That was a great um, outing by Nestor Cortez. Um, and to add to that, the Yankees have been going really strong this season. I mean, they're off to a great start. They're first in the AL East. They're 26-9. And, and um, they're five and a half games over um, the, the, the second place, um, Tampa Bay Rays. And so this is a great start for the Yankees. They're, they're swinging the bat really well. They're pitching pretty well. Um, and, and, you know, hopefully Nestor Cortez can continue this great run of form. And, I mean, he's, again, just like I said earlier, he's one of the most fun pitchers that I enjoy watching in the majors. Um, but, yeah, he's been great so far this season. So now moving on to our next player of the week, we have Reed Detmers, starting pitcher for the Los Angeles Angels. Um, and he threw a no-hitter last week on, on May 10th against the Tampa Bay Rays, in which the Angels won 12 to nothing. Um, this was the first complete game no-hitter thrown this season as the first, um, as, as there was a no-hitter thrown earlier this year, but it was a combined no-hitter from the New York Mets over the Philadelphia Phillies. Um, but Reed Detmers went on the mound on the 10th, and he just pitched an, an absolute gem for the Angels. Obviously, no hits given up. He went the full way, um, the, the, the full nine innings, and he only walked one batter. And surprisingly, you know, he only struck out two guys, and and I, I guess for me, typically when I think of no hitters, I think of oh, you know, the, this this pitcher's you know got his stuff working, and he's going to be striking out a lot of guys. But that wasn't the case for Detmers. He he had his stuff working for him, obviously, no doubt. Um, but he worked the ground balls and the fly balls. He had eleven ground balls, and he and and he forced the Rays into hitting eight fly balls, and so definitely kept the pitch count low in terms of. Not having any, not not having too many strikeouts, um, just because he only had two. Um, but Reed Detmers has been so far so good this season with 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 the Angels. 
I mean, he's pitching six games. He's two and one, two and one right now. Um, his ERA is a little high um, um, at three point seven seven. It's uh, it's not necessarily super high, but for me, I wouldn't consider that to be a you know your, your average ERA for a starting pitcher. Um, but he's pitched thirty one innings so far and has twenty strikeouts. And I, if I'm not mistaken, his WHIP is below um, one, which is fantastic. And right now, this is exactly what the Angels needed. Um, the Angels came into the season expecting big things from their ball club, um, and they're doing great right now. They're second in the AL West. They're at 24 and 14. Um, they're right behind the Astros in that first place spot. But the Angels really have everything going right for them right now. Um, I think this is something that the Angels have been waiting for for a long time. You know, obviously last year they had. Rendon, Shohei, and and Trout as well, but injuries kind of plagued the Angels last season, and they weren't really able to get anything going. But this season, it seems like so far everything's going right for them. Trout's staying healthy. Otani was off to a bit of a slow start, but he's slowly getting back into his groove. Um, and Rendon being there, and you know other guys like Taylor Ward, Brandon Marsh, those guys are proving to be huge for the Angels right now, and they they're just going to keep it on going and. This is what they need because they're getting, they're right now they're in the ALS obviously so it's a super competitive division and they're gonna have to show that they can play at a high level for the 162 games. Obviously, I mean they're 24 and 14 so we're about 38, 39 games into the season right now. So it's great that they're doing well right now. They just need to carry that on because remember baseball is not a sprint. It's a 162 game season and so. It's important that these teams show their longevity throughout the season and their consistency throughout the season to carry it on. And, you know, hopefully for the Angels, they can make it to the playoffs. They have not made the playoffs for ages. I don't even know when the last time they made the playoffs was. But I think it would be great for Mike Trout and Shohei and Rendon to all get in there and see, you know, what they can do and show the MLB what they can do too because they just haven't been at this stage, you know, as a ball club for the longest time. So it's definitely great to see the Angels doing well. Um, moving on now to our third and final player of the week. Um, this might come to a surprise for some people. Um, this isn't um, someone that typically plays a lot. He's only, he, he, he's got a fraction of the at-bats that most major leaguers have right now at this point in the season. But Josh Naylor last week had a fantastic game against the Chicago White Sox in their 12-9 win. Um, Josh Naylor of the Cleveland Guardians, right now he is batting 347 with five home runs and 22 RBIs. And last week he had two monster home runs against the White Sox. Um, in the bottom of the ninth, he had a game-tying, sorry, top of the ninth. In the top of the ninth, he had a game-tying grand slam off of Liam Hendricks and then followed that up with a go-ahead three-run homer in the top of the 11th off of um, off of uh, the White Sox reliever, Ryan Burr. And um, right now, the Guardians, they're, they're not doing great. Um, I don't think anyone expected them to do um, particularly well, but they're sitting third in the AL Central um, at 16 and 17. Um, but Josh Naylor had one, half, uh, one heck of a game. Um, and I'm sure many of you guys at home saw the video of him getting super pumped after he rounded the bases after hitting that three-run tank. In the 11th um, but no it's it's that that's the kind of spirit that people love to see in players and I think even though Josh Naylor doesn't 
get to play too much. I mean, he's, he's shown that from his at-bats and what he's been able to do with the minimal time he's getting, that he can be a force that's going to have to get reckoned with, you know. Um, he had 347 with five homers and 22 RBIs, so he's clearly making the most out of his... Uh, He's clearly making the most, so so he's clearly making the most out of the time that he's getting, um, and and just just to uh, wrap it up, he was three for five with eight RBIs in that game. Um, moving on now, um, I did want to talk about one last uh, development that took place this last week in the major leagues. Um, the Reds threw a no hitter against the Pirates, but they lost. Um, that's Obviously, that's not typical at all. Normally, when you throw a no-hitter, you're supposed to win. But the Reds are just in a terrible state as a ball club. Um, they're 9-26, and and they're last in the NL Central. Um, and even though their season was pretty much over with before it started, with you know getting rid of Jesse Winker and Eugenio Suarez and those guys, um, this just made it so much more miserable, um, you could say. Um, going out there and having Hunter Green on the mound, who's supposed to be a pretty promising, um, you know, young pitcher. I mean, he went seven and a third, gave up no hits, one earned run, um, and he did walk five, but he pitched a solid game. He also had nine strikeouts on top of all of that. Um, but it's, I mean, there, there's not much else to say other than the fact that the Reds are just really, really, really struggling right now. Um... And yeah, it's 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 definitely a bad start to the season for the Reds. I mean, again, people didn't expect them to do very well, um, and this is just adding you know salt into the wounds at this point. But um, now that we have covered what's going on in baseball, I did want to transition just a little bit and talk about what's going on in the NBA playoffs. Um, and I do want to start off with the Warriors. Um, the Golden State Warriors have advanced to the Western Conference Finals. Um, after winning Game Six against the um, against the Grizzlies, um, the Grizzlies obviously after after Game Three um, without John Morant, it seemed like it was pretty much over. Um, game Game Four though, um, Grizzlies came out dominated. They dominated Game Five as well, um, but it just wasn't enough to take down Stephen Curry, Clay Thompson, and the Golden State Warriors um, in Game Six. Desmond Bain had about 25 points, and Dylan Brooks came out strong. He had 30 points as well. But again, it just wasn't enough to take down the Golden State Warriors. Um, but I, I really have to give it to this Grizzlies team. They're they're a very young team. Um, you know, they don't have much experience in the playoffs, but this is going to be a team that's going to be reckoned with for the future. And this rivalry is. This is just the beginning of a rivalry in in the Western Conference between the Warriors and the Grizzlies. I mean, I I, I just you know throughout this entire season, it it seemed like the Grizzlies have been one of the only teams that really know how to play the Warriors effectively and kind of not get under their skin, but just attack them in a way that hurts them. Um, you know, they they've done it on multiple bases this year, and I think you know next season when when they're back and you know they've got this experience now in their back pocket they can definitely do some amazing stuff in the NBA um, but in terms of the Warriors the Warriors again obviously they advance to the Western Conference Finals and they'll be taking on the Dallas Mavericks um, who just 
obliterated the Suns in a Game 7 in Phoenix. Um, the Suns had an NBA best 64 wins this season, um, but gosh, they looked overwhelmed by the prospect of a Game 7, especially at home. Um, I'm not sure what it was. I can't really point to one specific thing, but it's just the Suns were missing shots that they typically make, and they were making poor passes that they typically didn't make. Um, I mean, it's 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 pretty simple when it comes down to those terms, but um, there wasn't anything that the Mavericks did, in my opinion, that completely shut down the Suns. It was more just Chris Paul and Devin Booker and that duo not really, you know, doing anything, really. Um, and then to add on to that, you know, DeAndre Ayton, you know, didn't have... The, you know the 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 best of his games um, only scored I think four points if I'm if I'm not mistaken but yeah it was it was a disappointing game I think a lot of people were hoping for a much more exciting game um, but the Suns just fell back early and just were never able to claw back against the Mavs and I mean you know I'm I'm, I'm not trying to take anything away from the Mavs here but the Suns just laid an egg straight up so um, that was pretty disappointing for the Suns but. On the other side of things, the Mavericks played fantastic. Um, Luka, Doncic, Luka Doncic had 35 points, 10 rebounds, and 4 assists. Jalen Brunson had 24 points, 6 rebounds, and 2 assists. And then Spencer Dinwiddie came off the bench huge for the Mavs this game and provided a huge 30 points for them. And I think it's safe to say that when three of your players combine for 89 points, um, that you're going to be coming out on top. Um, so... The Mavericks obviously played great. This series was fantastic. I was super glad to see it go to a Game 7. Um, even though the Game 7 was a little, you know, it, it, it wasn't as exciting as it could have been. Um, I'm, I'm super glad for the Mavs. I think the Mavs um, definitely deserve it. They played a hard series, um, and, 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 and they played it really well, too. Um, so... Um, the Mavericks will be taking on the Warriors in the Western Conference Finals. And just quickly to wrap it up, I did want to add in a couple fun facts that I just um, found out. But the Suns are, the, are only the second team in NBA history to win 64 regular season games and not make it to the Conference Finals. Um, and then lastly, Luka Doncic and Spencer Dinwiddie are the first teammates to have at least 20 points in one half in a game seven since Patrick Ewing and Alan Houston did it for the Knicks in 1997. So those are two little fun facts to take away from game seven between the Mavericks and the Suns. But the Mavericks will be taking on the Golden State Warriors in the Western Conference Finals um, coming up tomorrow. Um, and tonight the Celtics will be taking on the Miami Heat in the Eastern Conference Finals for game one. Um, so... Before we get to the end of the show, I did want to talk a little bit about some recent developments that are going on in soccer, um, and we're kind of going to focus on the um, we're we're, we're going to focus on Saturday's game between Liverpool and Chelsea for the FA Cup final. This was one heck of a game, definitely a tale of two halves for for both teams. Um, but I want to kind of break it down into three sections. I want to or th three or four sections. I want to talk about Luis Diaz and how he affected the game early on and throughout the game. I want to talk about Liverpool and how they controlled the game early on in the first half. And then I also want to talk about how Chelsea grew into the game 
in the second half. Um, again, I, I, I said that this is a game of two halves, right? And, you know, just, just as a brief look at the game, Liverpool controlled everything. And, I mean, they, they started off the game super hot. They, they really attacked the wing with Luis Diaz. Um, he stayed wide on the wing. Um, and they really got the ball to Diaz every chance they got. Um, every chance they had. And um, whether it was Luis Diaz staying wide or coming in and trying to switch the point of attack, Chelsea could not stop him. Um, this weekend, for instance, Luis Diaz went up against Trevor Chalaba, and every time I saw Luis Diaz get the ball, he took him on a one-on-one, -on -one, found the end line, and tried to cross it in and play it back into the box. And Luis Diaz has really been, in my opinion, the signing um, of the year. Um, uh, of the year, meaning the best winter signing. So obviously there's the summer transfer window and the winter transfer window, but out of the, all the winter transfer window signings, Luis Diaz has had the biggest and greatest effect on his team, Liverpool. Um, but it's interesting because what Luis Diaz did this weekend against Chelsea was exactly what he did in the Carabao Cup final in February against Chelsea. They found him wide and they put him on the wing and, and forced him to take one-on-ones against these Chelsea outside backs or their, their center backs. Um, other ways that they kind of got to Diaz was with balls over the top. Um, frequently in this last final, the FA Cup final this weekend, um, Sadio Mane, who was who slated as the number nine um, on the lineup, he would drop super deep into that midfield. And when you're playing against this Chelsea team that's kind of playing with the odd formation with that 3-4-3, Defending against a false nine that drops really deep into the midfield can be really challenging. Um, for for this reason alone, really, is that when a player drops in as the number nine, when they drop into that midfield, those center backs um, have to make a decision whether to follow that player into that midfield or to hold off. Because if you're that center back, you're thinking, okay, if I step up, then I'm going to be on his back, and that's great. I'm going to defend him. But then there's space behind. Now, if you don't follow him and leave him to maybe be a, a, a bit of a free-roaming player that can find himself in a little bit of space, that can cause problems because, sure, you've got the back nailed down, but then, what, Sadio Mane's going to pick up the ball in acres of space. So it, it confuses the defenders and makes them have to choose what to do. And in this case... Um, Chelsea center backs stepped up a lot, and this is how Liverpool were able to find Luis Diaz over the top. Um, it created that space behind all those center backs, um, and Chelsea found it really difficult to stop it. Um, another reason why it was difficult to stop it was honestly because Chelsea's back line was flat. Um, between Chalaba, um, it was Chalaba, Rudiger, and either Christensen or Aspilicueta. It was three of those, but it was Rudiger and Chalaba um, at the very least. Their back line was so flat that with one through ball, you could expose that back line and just completely negate those three players. Um, and, you know, so having a back flat, a, a flat back line just did not work for them. And it took Chelsea time to actually grow back into the game. And I mean, Liverpool really controlled every aspect of the game early on, um, whether they were on the ball or without the ball. On the ball, Liverpool really set their own tempo. They passed the ball around when they needed to. They controlled 
how much they attacked, how many numbers they put into their attack. And they also controlled the possession. I mean, they they figured that, look, we can't go at 100 miles per hour this entire game. And so then they would bring the ball back, knock it around for a few passes, and kind of settle the ball down. And so this threw Chelsea off. I mean, Chelsea at one point was running around looking like they're, you know, chickens with their heads cut off. And then all of a sudden, Van Dyke puts his foot on the ball. Things are stopped. Things are relaxed. And Chelsea's like, okay, we've got a breather. And then Liverpool goes back to it again, running 100 miles an hour, finding Luis Diaz um, over the top. And, you know, so this this was a really difficult moment for Chelsea. Um, you know, and the thing is, on top of that, when Chelsea did get the ball, which was not a lot, but when they did have possession of the ball, they were careless with it. Um, they made careless passes. They forced too many passes. The dribbling wasn't good. And also, Van Dyke and Ibrahima Konate of Liverpool really voided Lukaku's presence on the field because Lukaku's a target man. You know, he's someone that you get, you put him up against your center backs, have him put his back up against them. You find him inside and then hopefully have him lay it off to some of your interiors or your wingers, things like that. But with Ibrahima Konate and Virgil van Dijk back there, it was really difficult for Chelsea to get anything going. Um, so that was the first half. And Chelsea, I don't know what it was, but Chelsea switched it in the second half completely. Um, I want to talk about how they kind of grew into the game briefly here um, on two levels. One defensively, and the other is offensively. So on defense, one thing that I noticed when I was watching the game on Saturday was that Reese James and Marcus Alonso, who were playing as the wingbacks in the 3-4-3 formation, they adjusted to this problem of finding balls over the top. Uh, uh, sorry, they adjusted to the problem of Liverpool playing balls over the top behind them to simply just dropping back. Um, dropping back and making sure that they're, that that the player that they were defending was always in front of them and never making runs behind. Um, one thing that also helped was that Mohamed Salah picked up a groin strain um, in the game. So that obviously changed things because um, they had to make a substitution and put in Diogo Jota. Um, but Reese James and Alonso really adapted after that first half. And once they dropped back, they really nullified any possibility of balls over the top. And so no matter what, it, even if um, Diogo Jota was taking on Reese James on a one-on-one -on -one, or it was Diaz on Chalaba one-on-one, they were constantly in front of them. So that helped a lot. Um, now that's defensively. Um, offensively and on the attack, Chelsea had to make some pretty big changes and one thing that they picked up on was that Trent Alexander-Arnold and Andy Robertson are, you know, even though they're really right and left backs respectively, they push up a lot. You know, these are two outside backs, two of the world's best outside backs who know how to cross the ball properly um, and, and they know how to get up the field and cross it into the box. And so what Chelsea really did was that they found balls over the top behind Trent Alexander-Arnold and Andy Robertson and then once they got the ball over the top and broke those lines, they're they're able to use their uh, numerical superiority to go forward and really pile on the pressure on Liverpool. Um, it's interesting, though, because these teams do this in two different ways. Liverpool pile on the pressure by getting 
um, by by just using their wingers and and taking them on one one on one or playing the balls over the top. But Chelsea, on the other hand, break these lines in a different way, in which they're they're two wingers, attacking wingers, go out extremely wide on the field, which attract those outside backs. And when you attract those outside backs, it creates a lot of space between the center back and the outside backs on both sides. And so with that space, it needs to be filled. And so what they take, what, what, what they typically do, um, Chelsea, is that they use their outside wing backs to get up the field and go into those little half spaces that are typically on the sides of that 18-yard box. And so when you pull out those outside backs and you leave that gap, it allows for space for your outside wing backs to get up the field. And that worked to perfection for Chelsea. Obviously, they weren't able to score any goals from it, but it really piled on the pressure. Um, it put Liverpool on the ropes for quite a while. Um, and it, it, it really forced Liverpool to defend hard for that full second half and to take it into extra time and eventually into the penalties where Liverpool won um, 6-5, to five, if I'm not mistaken. Um, but this was a great game. I mean, it, it was, again, it was super interesting um, to see Liverpool take on Chelsea again because we had seen this matchup back in February during the Carabao Cup final, and the tactics were exactly the same for both teams. Um, you know, I, I'm, I'm, I've said it once and I'll say it again. Luis Diaz, the effect that he has on the game and um, the effect that he has on Liverpool's tactics has just been unbelievable. Um, he's such a good dribbler. He's great at taking players on 1v1, and he's got the pace to back it up and to accompany that. Um, and it's hard to, you know, playing against a guy like Diaz is very difficult to track because at one moment you can think, okay, he's going to stay on this wing and take me on one-on-one, and then you'll see him get the ball, cut in, dribble across the field, and switch the ball to the other side and switch that point of attack, and that he kind of gets lost in that mix of players. And so he's been fantastic for Liverpool. Um, but yeah, this game was a great game to watch. Definitely a fun game to watch. Um, Liverpool have won their second trophy so far after that, that, you know, the, the FA Cup being their second trophy of the season. And in recent developments, actually just today um, being Tuesday, um, Liverpool came back against Southampton after they went down 1-0. Um, they came back and won two to one, which kept their title hopes alive. Um, so they are taking that title race with Manchester City into match week 38 next weekend on Sunday, um, and it's going to be one heck of a finish. Um, Liverpool can win the league with a win or a draw, but obviously they need help from Aston Villa to beat Manchester City. Um, but this is going to be a title race for the ages and. I don't think I've experienced a title race this close um, since 2012, 10 years ago, when it was between Manchester City and uh, Manchester United when Sergio Aguero scored that famous um, title-winning goal against QPR in the 94th minute. Um, but this has set up a great finish to a great campaign for both of these teams. Um, and obviously Liverpool... Um, they're going for the quadruple. If they don't win the Premier League, they can still go for the uh, for for the uh, for the triple. Um, you know, sorry for for the treble. If they do manage to win the Champions League, which which will be played later this month um, against Real Madrid, but 
it's been one heck of a season, so um, there, there's not much else to say. Um, but I did want to thank you guys for tuning into this episode of Between the Lines. Um, it is a continuation of the Jack and Ian show, but it's just by myself. Um, but thank you so much for tuning in. Make sure to follow us on Instagram at Between the Lines Pod with a period in between each word um, at Between the Lines Pod um, on Instagram and Between the Lines on Spotify and YouTube. And until next time, see you guys later. Have a good one.